Maybe you've heard that phrase, teamwork makes the dream work. Yes? While the team at First Baptist continues to make the dream work, I'm, I'm grateful for Colin and Sue stepping up this morning and leading us. Um, last night in the early evening, Jeremy phoned me, Reverend Jeremy, and said, I don't think I should be coming to church tomorrow. So we made that executive decision that I would preach his sermon. And so since he's such a responsible young man, his sermon was already done, it was ready to go, and so here we go. So if this sermon doesn't sound like me, because it's smarter than I am, it's because Reverend Jeremy wrote it. (laughs) So I invite you, reflection. If a friend asked you to summarize your basic beliefs about life and faith, basic beliefs about life and faith, where would you start? Maybe you'd start with words about the person of Jesus, his life, and his teaching. But after some more conversation, you might take time to name the hopes and aims of a life of faith Maybe even some of your questions or doubts. You might describe some of the private ambitions you have for the nourishment of your soul. Some of your motivations for prayer, service, worship, participation in the community life. You might also share why you would read scripture or take part in spiritual practices. Maybe you would share your hopes, what you hope to get out of all this devotion and worship week after week, year after year. And as you press deeper, you might name your desire for a life of purpose, a way of being that thrives and connects. And at the edge of the spiritual imagination, you could even describe images of a soul's desire for healing, wholeness, and peace. Even if you're not sure what that would look like, you could probably share some stories about experiences you've had or lessons you've learned from teachers or mentors or guides along the way. But you might also name some of the toxic theologies, the unhealthy patterns you've picked up over time. We all have lessons that we are still working to unlearn. Friends, this is a place made for holy conversations like this. As we make our way through the Acts of the Apostles, it's worth noting that we aren't reading just another spectacular story about Paul and his friends. Because the whole of the book of Acts that we've been preaching and teaching through for the summer and now going into the fall, the whole of the book of Acts is a series of lessons, insights found in these accounts of the hectic life of the first church, showing us the ways that the Spirit moves in and around neighborhoods, the Spirit moving in landscapes and communities and lives. In the course of Paul's journey, he would cross paths with all sorts of people. We've met several of them 
over the past few weeks. Kings and priests, men and women of high standing, and also those enslaved, imprisoned, and many ordinary working folk. Sometimes these stories from Acts upend our expectations, as surprising characters are welcomed into the church with a sudden joyous celebration of faith. Other times, Acts startles us, as the apostles' best efforts are met with confusion, resistance, difficulty, anger, and even violence. And so today's passage is about the apostles venturing into new territory, the place where ancient peoples lived on the periphery of society. And even still in the midst of these stories, there are lessons for 21st century folk. The church is resilient and surprising. I want to say that one again. The church is resilient and surprising. The church is fragile and vulnerable, and yet the Spirit is there in the midst of it all, nourishing, celebrating, blessing humanity in creation. Last week in Acts 13, we were told of the Holy Spirit speaking to the people and saying, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so the first church folks gathered around these two newly created apostles, blessing them and laying hands on them, sending them as messengers out into the world with that ambitious task of bringing salvation even to the ends of the earth. And so we catch up with them in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas had already traveled by ship and over land. We saw that map that Don shared with the children They were visiting Crete, heading to the mainland. They were crossing rough terrains and coastal mountains in what is now southern Turkey. And then the apostles found themselves, maybe with some surprise, in this part of the world called Lycaonia, this isolated place way out of the beaten path. Highland countryside populated by locals, who had that same rough landscape to thank for the relative freedom that they mostly enjoyed from empires and armies. Many of the first peoples there were modest, hill country people, herding sheep and donkeys. They weren't known for their sophistication or refinement. And these people were living on the fringes of progress, the margins of commerce. And in popular culture, they were probably belittled or joked about as superstitious hillbillies, country bumpkins. Paul and Barnabas traveled the highway between the towns in this region, and they passed through a place called Lystra. And the apostles had one of those casual acts of the apostles' miracle moments. That's where the story started today like we've seen in previous stories, the sudden healing of a man who had never walked, born without the use of his legs. And so understandably, there's excitement. People begin to shout and celebrate. What a sight to behold! A miraculous healing! 
But the thing is that Paul and Barnabas didn't speak the local Lycaonian language. What were all these people so excited about? What were they saying? So here's where the story, it helps to have a little more background. Local legends included stories about the gods taking human form and secretly visiting regular people. These gods would test people's generosity and reward their kindness with miraculous blessings. The world-renowned Roman poet Ovid. This is where you realize that I didn't write this sermon, everybody. (laughs) The world-renowned Roman poet Ovid had even adapted one of these local stories, updated with the Greek gods Jupiter and Mercury, otherwise known as Zeus and Hermes. Fun fact. And the story goes that these two gods had visited and blessed an aging married couple in that very region. And so this became a celebrated and much-loved tale. It was a local claim to fame for these country bumpkins. And so with these two foreign strangers in town, walking amongst them and healing a man just like that, what other side sign did these people need? Zeus and Hermes were here again, in human form. Hurrah! Celebration, sacrifice, and people ran and found the local priest of Zeus just outside of town, and what a big day it must have been for that guy. Imagine him running to fetch his fanciest priestly garments and barking orders at his assistants and fussing with his robe and his tassels and his sacrificial burn-the-animal kit. That wasn't part of it. Imagine an ecstatic parade and oxen for sacrifice and decorations and commotion and Barnabas, apparently the more quiet and dignified one, they were calling Zeus. And Paul, who did all the talking, they were calling Hermes because he's the herald of the gods. And maybe the apostles were resting in their hotel room (laughs) and then peeking out of the curtains, wondering what all the fuss was about. And then when Paul and Barnabas finally maybe find a translator to explain the situation to them, they're, they're upset they're, they're shocked. This was not the theology lesson they had in mind. They were people of the Jesus way. Zeus and Hermes? How do we fix this mess? What can an apostle do to fix a deeply held theological point of view? And so with dramatic fare and flair and tearing their clothes in protest, the two apostles run into the streets. And what follows is a remarkable little sermon from the Apostle Paul. Unlike most of his sermons, Paul doesn't even get to the part about Jesus because this is a special effort. It's a from-scratch first sermon. This reset in trying to reframe the theological landscape for these people. He could get to Jesus eventually, But for now, this complicated situation needed a simple sermon. So Paul starts by introducing the God of creation, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
Not this distant, grumpy God who only makes occasional visits. Instead, a creator who devotedly cares for regular mortal humans like all of us. The God of nourishment and goodness. The creator of everyone and everything. The one who pours out love for all creation. And Paul doesn't break out his philosophical training words, lingo, or argue with world religious talk. Paul's sermon is simple, and it is beautiful. The grace of God is a drink from a cool stream. The grace of God is the first rays of sunshine breaking over the ridge. The grace of God is the gift of fresh rain on a parched hilltop. Fruitful seasons of birth and life and goodness, berries and honey, spring lambs and contented donkeys. In his book, Rescuing the Gospel from Cowboys, Subtitle, An American, A Native American Expression of the Jesus Way. The author, Richard Twist, starts with this very same ancient insight. He writes, There is only one creator of heaven and earth. There are not many creators, just one. All of human and non-human creation comes out of this one creator. There is not a creator who created Africa and Africans, or Asia and Asians, or Europe and Europeans. Throughout his life, Twist would teach and speak at length, describing the great failure of theological imagination exhibited by our settler ancestors. Christians who had denounced and demonized indigenous spirituality or called it idolatrous, demonic evil. What a loss when compared to the simplicity and humility of Paul's little sermon and Paul's generous starting point. May voices like Richard Twist be our guides and mentors in the days ahead as we continue to have our imaginations challenged and expanded. We, the Church, are still unlearning many of these hard lessons. All the while, the Church fragile and vulnerable. And consequential things don't always go the way we want them to be, and many of us have stories and the receipts to show for it. But the Spirit is here in the midst of it all, guiding, nudging, recreating. And for Paul and Barnabas, despite their best efforts, it really didn't go the way they wanted. The crowd still kept making their offerings to Zeus and to Hermes, and even worse, when people from nearby towns caught wind of this mess that Paul and Barnabas were making in Lystra, they pulled together a mob, capturing Paul, dragging him out of the city, stoning him almost to his death. 
And the Acts story moves along so quickly without even explaining how Paul survived or what state he was in. All we're told is that the disciples surrounded him. So again, we see the church resilient and surprising and the world remaining complicated and dangerous. And at the Spirit's leading, Paul and Barnabas moved on to the next town, carrying the message of the Jesus way in the world, speaking out, seeking out fresh ears that might hear that same message. And so, friends, the starting point for our theological imagination is the loving creator who cares for the whole earth. This is our first reference point. It's our steady undertone, our sustaining hope. And yet still there are so many more conversations yet to be had. That's good news. So many more mysteries to ponder and lessons yet to be unlearned. I encourage you to have conversations like these. Share some insights with friends. Open your heart to the Spirit's possibilities. Because this place, this people, this time, this season, was made for holy work. Holy work that we are called to do in all of our lives. Thanks be to God.